Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 28 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm your host, Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today's guest, Shan, lost her son, Max, at the age of 15 months when he died of sudden, unexplained death and epilepsy. Shan is also a very unique guest today because she is a psychiatrist. She is actually finishing her fellowship training in child and adolescent psychiatry. So you might think that she should know all the answers and know everything there was to know about grief when her son Max died. She quickly learned, however, as did I, that the medical community does a pretty lousy job treating grief and that we really don't know much more than the average person. She does certainly have a lot more head knowledge about different types of therapy and Um, different ways of thinking during the grieving process, which she does share with us, and I find extremely helpful. But she is also quick to admit that having this head knowledge did not always transfer to heart knowledge. I certainly learned a lot from this conversation and hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. so much for agreeing to be on the show today and sharing your son Maxwell with all of us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, it's amazing that you have this podcast um, and giving, you know, interviewing families about their their children that they've lost. Well, thank you so much. So why don't you start out by telling us just a little bit about you and how you heard about the podcast? Sure, absolutely. My name is Shan Gao. We actually don't know each other other than virtually, and I'm a child and adolescent psychiatry uh, fellow, almost done with my residency, and um, Maxwell, which I'll talk talk about him in a little bit, after about a year after he died, um, my program director told me that she was listening to a podcast um, and that was your podcast and said that it might be a good idea for me to take a listen. So I did. And I, I think I, that after the first few, um, I reached out to you. I think we're both in this um, bereaved. It's the best club on Facebook, by the way, a bereaved <laughs> like physician mom club. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you then... can't believe that there is actually a <laughs> Facebook group for bereaved physician mothers. But yes, that does yeah, exist. That mm-hmm. does exist. And then I reached out to you. And then, you know, after a little while, here, here we are. That's kind of how we kind of really were able to chat and really know each other virtually. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. it is nice when you have people that you can that can really truly understand, especially when you're in similar, you know, fields. Absolutely. 
I um, think half so, of the time, I feel like as a general pediatrician, I'm really a child psychiatrist. So, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, Maxwell um, was my firstborn. He uh, actually, so I'm an only child, and my husband has an older brother, but he was like the first child of both sides of the family, like the whole, mm-hmm. like both huge sides of the family. And he was born April. 28, 2017. And he was, you know, pregnancy was fine. He was breached and had a C-section, but no issues whatsoever. Really no genetic, genetic, any issues on either of our sides. And he was developing really well. He was a really calm baby, really loved all sorts of food, really was like just a very chill baby. I think this is kind of like a first parents who are first parents in the beginning, you still think that you can just carry on your day-to-day life as if mm-hmm. you're still kind of like a person without a child, but then you just drag your child everywhere until yes. at some point you realize, actually, they need to go to bed at like six o'clock and you can't do that. But for the first few months, we kind of just took him everywhere. We would, you know, go out with our friends. Still and just, so he basically met a lot of our friends. He still traveled a lot and he would just come along with us. So he was just a very easygoing baby and just a real great addition to our family. We loved him so much. And then it was in December and we were having friends over for actually like a birthday party for me, I guess, you know, at this age, not really birthday parties, but just a birthday celebration. And I had two of my coworkers here who are also physicians. And at some point I turn around and I saw that my son was having a seizure. And I remember saying, I think my son is having a seizure. And the other two doctors looked at him and said, yes, he is. And I said, I'm going to the hospital now. And they said, yes, you are. And that kind of started the whole journey with him no longer being this like healthy firstborn child that I, in my mind, thought that I would have. How old was he at the time? He was eight months. So it was an unprovoked seizure. Um, when we got there, they said, you know, that there could have been this point of they could send, you know, we were in the emergency room, they could have sent us home or not. And their decision point was, well, he doesn't have a fever. And I said, mm-hmm. no, he doesn't. And they said, okay, well, why don't we just admit him overnight? It's probably nothing, but let's just have him, you know, overnight and see what's going on. And I said, okay, sure. As a little bit of an aside here, when you have a child with a seizure, with a fever, it truly isn't a big deal because it may seem like a big deal and it feels like a big deal, but medically it often really isn't because that's very, very common and you don't have to go in the hospital and you don't have to do any sort of workup. So that's why the fever was kind of, was a really big deal. Um, Right. So they kept checking to see if they had a fever. And also, I mean, aside from that aside, I don't know about how you were with your kids, but I guess as a physician, my threshold is high, you know, like I wasn't taking my child to just any, you know, if he had like a little sniffle, I wouldn't take him to the doctor thinking that I could just handle it, even though I, I know I'm a first time mom and also not a pediatrician, but it just felt like I could handle a lot of things, but that one was definitely one that I was like, "Uh uh-oh, no, 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 no. But even then I was thinking, okay, this is not a big deal. Maybe I was minimizing, thinking, oh, Mm -hmm. maybe it's kind of overkill to get him to have him admitted. Um, So that was kind of going through my head. And then when we went up to the floor, he had another, oh, did he have another? 
he might have had another seizure. And from that point on, you know, it was we kind of realized that this wasn't just a, really a one-off. And then he continued to have seizures in the hospital. And we were there for about a week. Um, he had the full, like, neurology workup and really didn't know what was going on. And he was on a couple of anti-seizure medications going home. So that was in December. So he got home right before... Uh, Christmas. So it was kind of bittersweet to have a lot of time spent in the hospital, but then still being able to come home for Christmas. Yeah. And then after that, we really just kind of kept, kept trekking along. You know, as a first time parent, you don't really know what is a norm and what isn't. So, you know, I was always very worried, but never too worried um, about him, always thinking, you know, thinking about what the plan, what the, what the assessment would be. Uh, he had a few more um, just like e- uh, EEGs where medications were changed. He actually needed to be hospitalized one more time. They were changing medications. Then by around February and March, his, med- his seizure was um, under control. I mean, at that point, obviously, he was diagnosed with epilepsy by then. And, um, but it was under control and he was developing, um, you know, I want to say looking back, not a little bit delayed, but not too delayed. Um, We had him evaluated and they said, you know, he's kind of on the border, but nothing that we would need special care at this point. Um, So we were going into the summer really excited, you know, to finally, it's the summer, his seizures are controlled, he's on the right medication, let's kind of move on, let's enjoy our time. And then in July 18th, I got got a call from my nanny saying that he, you know, she went to go check on him after a nap and he didn't wake up. And um, I just remember asking her, is he okay now? And she's like, I don't know. And that was I just kind of at that point, I got the sense that something wasn't wasn't right. Was really. It turned out that yeah, it turned out that he um, yeah he didn't wake up from his nap. They actually got him. He was revived actually in the at the children's hospital. So we and then we had two more days with him. Um, but then he, eventually he did die, and then we were able to donate you know like his heart to a child and his kidneys to a, like a local man here. And yeah, it turns out he died from what is actually called a sudden unexplained death and epilepsy, something that I really wasn't aware of. I, if I had learned it in medical school, it must have not been anything that was repeated more than once. Oh, so it was really yeah, no I don't think so. I don't feel like I learned about it and I did pediatrics. So. Right. So, and then, you know, no one, so at no, no point when he was diagnosed with epilepsy, I thought that maybe he could die from this. I just never mm-hmm. thought that for one second. So it was a, it was a real shock for us. Yeah. So were you, so you were at work then when you got this phone call? Yeah, we were, I was at work at Children's Hospital doing my psychiatry consult liaison, my rotation. And I was on the, I remember it, like I was on the eighth or ninth floor and I just immediately, you know, went to the emergency room and you know, the rest of it was really surreal. I think he had just gotten there to the trauma bay. Because I'm assuming your nanny called 911 before she called you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, she was she called 911 and was doing, yeah, CPR and then called as they took, was, they took him away in the ambulance. From okay. Oh. And then I was asking her if he was breathing by then, and she said, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. why she said that, because 
she was yeah. he was in the care of people by that point in time. Yeah, and the rest of that was real too. You know, them whisking you away into a room, and either either in medical school or in residency, you learn you watch these videos of how to give families bad news, and so it was kind mm-hmm. of surreal because they were whisking you away and. People were coming in with the faces of, I'm about to give you bad news. And you're like, huh. Because <laughs> you're just like, I was in complete shock. And they gave me the news and there was like a time of wall between from the emergency room to the, I guess the ICU. And at some point I was like, should I just go back and finish my notes? <laughs> and I, I was like, and then my attending was like, no, don't do that. That's, that's not what you need to do worry about at this point but you know sometimes when you're in shock you have no idea like you're trying to hold on to some sense of normalcy I know. Um, yeah like, you know it's funny because people might think that that seems crazy and um you know after after Andy died Andy died on Wednesday night and yeah. uh Thursday night I was finishing my notes that I had left undone because I you know we were going off to this baseball game and I had like five or six notes that I didn't have done and I was doing them and my partners were all like forget about the notes we'll just whatever it doesn't matter but it's funny in your head you're like no I need to do that that's that's something I need to do right so it's it's uh it's seems so weird I know I'm sure to other people (laughs) but it's funny that you said that because I did the exact same thing I mean, I, and, and the other thing is, is I just had all this guilt of it being over my head. Like, I still don't have those notes done. I need to have those notes done. You know what I mean? It's just, it seems ridiculous, yeah. but, but that's I'm what I'm so glad that you had that same, I'm so glad you had that same experience and that you shared that with me because it sounds crazy, but it, but when you look back on it, it's like, that's something I can do. <laughs> that's something I can control right. and it should be done. Whereas my entire life at that point has completely fallen apart. It's something yeah. that is very concrete and you can just do. Yeah. Yeah. I still remember I was sitting on, on my bed, well, on my computer, cause we all, it's all electronic sharding doing right. that. And my husband was sitting in a chair in the bedroom as well. And he was writing um, a letter of recommendation that he had promised to write to a medical student wow. for a medical student to get into residency. So we were both doing this, kind of silly Um, silly work but we both felt like well we got to do it to get this checked off the list so we don't you know what I mean so we don't need to worry about it and that medical student you know had no idea that Andy had even died there's I'm sure he would have been like Dr. Larson I will find someone else to write me a letter of recommendation right Um, but it's just what you end up I think you're right I think you just want to do something that feels a little bit normal yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I actually had a recent conversation with my program director about, you know, what was happening around that time when I was coming back. You know, as you know, in real time, you really get three days of bereavement. And, you know, uh, legally, that's really all they need to give you. I was lucky enough that I was given the, the chance for they gave me the option of however much time I needed off. And I know that you had actually taken a little bit more time um, mm-hmm. off, but I just couldn't. I think we kind of went back and forth a little and I took about three weeks off. And mm-hmm. it was really like, I just couldn't 
sit in my house alone anymore yeah. than that. And I think that that might be one a little bit of a difference between you when you have other children. For us, it was like he was our world, you know, every second. Right. If I'm not thinking about, you know, when I'm at work, I'm at work. But every other second, my all my, you know, head is in mind is thinking about him. And then all of a sudden, it was like, not only did he die and, I, and grieving, but it's also this huge absence of basically everything. So then to not go back to not be able to then do something else that you were also doing was just too much. It was just such a too many hours in the day to do nothing and just to be with your grief. Like, I just couldn't. Yeah, it's hard. I think it. it's just really individual. I think it. Absolutely. It, you know, you have to make that decision for yourself as Absolutely. to what is best. I mean, I certainly was in a quiet house, too, because the kids were at school. Sure, but yeah. um, but but the pain of seeing children and seeing families was yeah. just too much for me. I just could not yeah. do it. It seemed like every boy I saw, I could think of what Andy was like at that age, or if it was what the age he was now, or something right. like that. It was just there were reminders every single time. And I knew the family so, so well. Oh, you know, when I've yeah. taken care of families for 10 years, and they come in right. and they just, you know, I had families come in and cry and moms start to cry when they saw me. You know, that's, it was just too hard. So that's why I, you know, I tried yeah. going back, but then I had to leave because I it just was too much. Had I had a yeah. different occupation, <laughs> you know, or just yeah. a different part of medicine, yeah. I think it would have yeah. been different. But yeah. for me, that's why it was difficult. But I had to yeah. have people like drag me out, you know, my friend drugged me out to play pickleball twice a day, which... <laughs> <laughs> or not twice a day, twice a week, oh, which was not nice something I really love to do, but she just wanted me out of the house. So uh, it just depends. It just depends. Yeah. But I can absolutely see why you want to keep your mind busy. Um, yeah, because that's the hardest thing really is when your mind starts going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say those first few months is there's not, you know, there's really no way to describe it. It felt like I was drowning. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah. It's, and I felt like, like there was a lot, a lot of fear and a lot of shame, even though I know it, that doesn't really make too much sense in logic, but it, that's how it felt. It was just, and, and also a lot of anger. <laughs> I, I would say that, I didn't think how much anger I had until, like, I'm looking back on it. I don't know. It, it felt like my entire world has just been totally shaken, and it was, it's been awful. And then how dare other people just live their lives as if mm-hmm. that did, you know, my son didn't die. And it was really hard. I, I was, like, pretty angry, mostly internally. Like, I wasn't obviously picking fights with people, but... It, it did feel much more like, you know, grief often feels isolating. And I think that's part of the isolation where you feel like you're just living in a completely different universe as the people that you were a second ago, the same universe, but just completely, you know, that there's something about 
yeah, which I've lost that leads to that feeling anyway. Yeah, I know you wrote uh, earlier to me that your whole worldview just changed overnight and that you thought the world yeah. was one way. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I thought about that as I thought about, you know, how grief is so very individualized. It's like, mm-hmm. for me, I really hadn't experienced, you know, everyone has, you know, lots of things that they go through that are difficult through life, but I hadn't really experienced a big, like a very huge trauma in my life until, you know, right now on 34th, I, I was about 33 and neither had my husband. So our worldviews were that of those people who haven't really experienced trauma or uh, significant loss. So, you know, the worldviews that I had that I took it like just really took granted for, you know, I thought the world was safe. That's the Mm -hmm. first thing. Um, I thought that as long as I was a good person, that things kind of just work out. And they kind of have for, you know, most of my life. And that the third thing was that tragedies, you know, were really things that happened, and I hate to say this, but to other people, um, to, you know, in novels, on the news, but that they didn't happen to me. <laughs> and it sounds, you know, ridiculous to say now, but when those views were just completely shattered, you know, the moment that Max died, and then, you know, then, then where are you? You just feel totally unsafe after living on those assumptions for so long. Well, that really reminds me of my husband and I because, you know, I did have like bad stuff happen in my life growing up. And my husband just didn't. And he said that's why even as he's doing CPR on Andy and trying to get him back and it's so bad, right? It was so bad. He just kept thinking, it's going to work out. Things always work out Mm -hmm. for me because for him, things always did work out. And he just didn't think in a million years that it wouldn't work out. It always kind of bugged him a little bit about me that I was a little more pessimistic on those on those lines, right? I would hope for the best, but kind of expect the worst was kind yeah. of just the way I lived my life because bad stuff happened. But that's not the way he had been. So this really did rock his world in that same kind of way. Yeah, and I guess for me, I kind of felt like, well, I've, I things had been going pretty well for a while, and I started to think, well, maybe I've done my bad stuff. Maybe my bad stuff is over, and now I will just have good things happen. And neither one of those are true. <laughs> bad things no. just happen, and they can happen to anyone at any time, and it doesn't matter if you're a good person or. Yeah, I, I mean, I think every one of us will have something that basically will bring us to our knees at some point and many multiple maybe multiple times it just kind of depends on when it happens and when it will be if we live long enough we're bound to experience lots of lots of tragedies absolutely but yeah i think yeah go ahead i i was just going to ask you what you thought this experience did for your professional life and how you feel like that has changed you when you're doing um, child and adolescent psychiatry. Absolutely. So I think we kind of briefly talked about this and your assumption was right about, you know, yes, I'm a psychiatrist, but just like you, you know, we went through the same medical training. <laughs> and really yeah. there's very little about grief and mourning. 
And I actually ended up doing my grand rounds just recently about this topic. And I think one of the reasons is just that we think of grief as just a very natural process. Like we as a species have experienced, you know, grief, loss, mourning since the beginning, since, since the beginning of time. I think in medical school, this is basically pop culture. We kind of learn about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's, you know, five stages. I think I knew this yes. as a high schooler when I went through a breakup. <laughs> you got <laughs> denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. Mm-hmm. And it just really wasn't very helpful when I was actually experienced other, you know, other grief. It just didn't feel very helpful. Um, it no. felt like the stages were kind of contrived and really, it was, it's a lot messier than five stages. Mm-hmm. But I think she definitely meant well and that um, I think I read somewhere that it was much more of a description of general processes rather than being prescriptive. But at the same time, like, that's basically all the learning that we get about grief and mourning. You will be happy to know that my daughter is taking an AP psych class in high school, and they went to talk about grief, and her teacher said um, that those are no longer felt to be, uh, (laughs) those five stages are no longer (laughs) accurate, so... Anyway. I'm so glad that she said that. And yes. I'm, I'm, what I'm curious about is what are the kind of the new ways of thinking about grief? I'm yeah, it curious, sounded like, like what, it was yeah. more of you can have all of those things sort of all at the same time. And again, yeah. like you said, grief is just much, much messier than that. And then I, I'm sure my yeah. daughter had quite a bit to say on the topic oh, in I'm, class. I'm glad that she would speak up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you did that recently, a talk on that. Yeah, I did. And it seems like maybe this is why that we really haven't, as a medical field, really haven't spent much time and energy really going going deeper than that. Uh, maybe it used to be much more of like a community sense. So, you know, like the, the village would kind of grieve together and now we're kind of in a more isolated a little bit more isolated in our just the way that society is. I don't know whatever the case, but I just found that what I had learned was not really that helpful for me in terms of learning about grief. However, you know, I am pretty familiar with things like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, and some of those ideas, just a way of thinking about things was helpful for me to not I guess, get stuck in some kind of like negative ideas. I, I want to call it kind of like spiraling, like you had kind of have a negative thought and you kind of just spiral. I remember thinking very clearly, even while I was in the hospital, you know, I had a lot of these what if thoughts just come in my head. Like what if I was home that day? What if, you know, his medication were adjusted differently? Like they all kind of were coming on line very loudly while I was in the hospital. And I just said, this is not going to change the outcome. None of this is really going to bring him back. Mm-hmm. I can't spend any more energy that I already don't have thinking in that way. And I just really just actively like shut off that type of like negative questioning thinking and kind of just mm-hmm. shut it off. I remember actively doing that. 
And I felt like that was just really helpful for me in just the very early stages. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, there are papers about bereavement and kind of there's trajectories and people who recover or not recover, uh, how fast they recover. Uh, spoiler alert, people who lose children, they tend to not recover very well or very fast. I mean, you know, these studies are like 12 to 18 months and a lot of them don't recover very much in those 12 to 18 months. But, you know. <laughs> I would think not, yes. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But um, That's no, new, them, no shock to any of no uh, my listeners any of at all. Right, yeah. right. Not a spoiler alert, but um, so, yeah, but I think that in the beginning was really helpful that it took away a lot of like, because those questions will only lead to feeling of responsibility and guilt and that you could have done something differently as a parent. And I think we all feel that to an extent. It's nice you were able to push those thoughts aside. I also wonder, I think every mother that I've talked to and support groups are on here has said yeah. they felt like at some point in time they were like going crazy. I mean, I remember saying to my own therapist, I'm going crazy. And she would say, you're not going crazy. But yeah. you probably didn't feel like you were going crazy. Or did you? You know, what's interesting is like, with my training, it was it's a lot about kind of like, maybe this is too just me intellectualizing the process, but it was a lot of me looking at myself. It's almost like I'm looking down at myself going through this. And maybe that was just helpful for me. But yes, at times, I definitely felt like I was going crazy. And then I was trying to use skills to try to help me kind of sit with how crazy I felt. Mm -hmm. And then trying to use things to try to not feel, just to have some reprieve, you know, because in the early day, early weeks, I am, you know, crying everywhere. Like, there's no reprieve. The moment I wake up, I'm crying. I'm so upset. I'm in shock. I'm angry um, until the day is over. And then you don't think another day will start again. And then they can fall asleep. And then somehow the next day just begins again. Um, so finding things in those early days to be helpful was really hard. But I was, I, tr I was able to find some. So I can just give you one example. So from DBT, the, this idea of uh, being dialectical, um, that you can hold two ideas that seem to totally contradict one another, but you can hold them at the same place. And, you know, they both are true. That, I don't know if you felt this, but I felt this way a lot. Like, I need to go to work. I need to wake up every day and do all these things. At the same time, I feel like dying would just be so blissful and wonderful. And then I mm -hmm. can be with my son. Why would I ever want to do anything without, why would I ever want to live in a world without my son? How dare I even want that? And I would feel those two things equally as I'm going through my day while I'm crying and stuff, you know. And just to think of it, like when I think to myself, like, okay, these two thoughts are opposite. And it's okay that they're, they're both there because of DBT. Like, they, they are dialectical. I feel them both. So it's kind of like things like that that was really helpful because, yes, I was going crazy. And at the same time, I'm trying to process what it is that I'm actually feeling crazy about. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really helpful, I think, for you to share that and how those feelings, you can feel both of them at the same time and feel they're both true and be okay with that. Because I know a lot of people struggle with that. 
Yeah. Feeling like you want to fight one of them away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they don't seem like they could possibly be true together. I think the other one, you know, at DBT, they talk a lot about mindfulness. And it's really just being like present and non-judgmental. And for me, I had a lot of, and I don't know if you experienced this, but I had a lot of feelings about my feelings. Like I would see, you know, one of the worst examples is I, you know, I would see parents with, you know, little babies and I would just be so angry, also really hurt. I was so hurt and angry and mad and all of those feelings. And, you know, then I would, how do I sit with these feelings? You know, what I automatically would do is think, oh, I should, can't feel that. I'm a terrible person for thinking, for like seeing other people's families and then being really mad and hating them. But instead, you know, just being aware and like, okay, these are my feelings. Mm-hmm. And just kind of sitting with them and letting that just be, that, letting that just be was really helpful in terms of kind of sorting, just being able to sit with your feelings, I think is really yeah. helpful and not being judgmental of them. Yeah, it's so easy to feel guilty about having certain feelings or getting angry with yourself for having certain feelings. I know for me, a big trigger was just out in public seeing families with three kids. I just, every time I saw a family with three kids, I'd look at the middle one. I'd just look at the middle one and I'd look at those parents and say, what would your life be like without the middle one? I mean, it was just terrible that I was thinking that and I would, but I would do that. I would just, you know, I'd just be drawn to that middle child that I didn't have anymore. But then, you know, it's funny how after time I, I had had this realization at some point. And when I would see families of three, I would think to myself, I don't know anything about them. And it may be, Maybe that there yeah. were four. I don't know that yeah. there might not have been four and one's missing. I don't know. And yeah, that yeah. realization was really big for me. And as soon as I started having that way of thinking of, I really don't know yeah. what they've gone through and what their losses might have been. And I shouldn't, right. and I can't just go around now being angry or almost at families with three kids. Yeah, I'm so glad that was helpful for you. But I think what you're saying is is exactly you were practicing cognitive behavioral therapy right there. <laughs> that the whole idea is that you have an emotion and it's perceiving the emotion as a thought. And if you can change your thought, then your emotion changes. And you're kind of just saying exactly like your thought initially was, I hate them. Yeah, <laughs> um, really. <laughs> then your feeling was anger. <laughs> right. And then if you change your thought to, you know, I don't really know what type of loss they're holding on to. I don't know anything about them. And then you're, you've changed your emotion, which is, you know, a little bit more, a little bit softer. You could still be well, angry, but maybe a little bit softer. I think why I started thinking about it that way is because when we're out in public, when it's just me and the and two kids, you know, if I'm not with my foster son, but with the two and my husband and I, and we go out to eat and we sit at a, you know, regular booth, which I hate doing now because, you know, we're always a family of five and we could not fit in a regular booth. So we had to have a special table and wait longer. And so it's, it's, I hate the fact that we can fit at a regular table now, actually. Yeah. But I thought everyone just thinks we're a family of four, right? Because that's like the common way. So I just, I know that I don't look like 
I'm missing anything when I'm out and about. Yeah. So that's why I guess I started thinking about those other families. They may be missing uh, something too, right? right? Just because there are five of them, mm. mom, dad, three kids, doesn't mean that that's the way it has always been. And I think you speak to another good point. I think I saw this. Uh, it was Stephen Colbert and uh, Anderson Cooper. They were in. I think it was, they were maybe co-interviewing each other. I mean, if you don't know anything about them, they both have had significant losses, traumatic I, losses. I loved that interview. It was very, very. Did good. you love yes. it? Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm so glad you saw it. And so Anderson Cooper says, you know, I wish I just had like a mark on my head that showed other people that I you know, I've had a traumatic loss and I'm hurting and I'm grieving because mm-hmm. it's so invisible that I feel that loss just feels invisible, that on the outside, you seem just fine. Right. I, I mean, right. the people who don't really who don't know you, but yeah, I, I would say that I have a similar experience because um, now we have an 11 month old uh, girl. She's, her name is Luna and she's wonderful. Um, but when the three of us walk out, it looks like a really just a very happy family of three. Right, right. And people ask you, is she your first? What do you say? Oh, yeah, that's a that's a good question. So when I was pregnant, people asked that a lot. Like, you know, people just love asking pregnant people questions. <laughs> I probably did this too with other friends who were pregnant and just didn't think anything about it. But a lot of my patients, parents, who are people who don't know me, yeah, is it your first? a boy or girl you know I still don't have great a great script for those answers these are kind of the two scenarios I tell the whole truth and kind of have to sit with that awkwardness of like you know I hate to call it but I the the dead baby bomb that I'm dropping onto them and I kind of we kind of struggle through it and I've had that experience um, with others, probably with patient family, I just say, yeah. yeah. And then I go into my car and cry the whole way home. And I haven't found a good medium. And I think just trying to be, you know, not hard on myself to know that even when I answer it that way, that it's not because I forgot my son died. It's just it's just kind of a moment to moment thing. But it, it's really hard. It's really hard. Um, and well, it's really hard that. when it's a when it's a patient <laughs> when it's the patient yeah. family. I mean, it really yeah. is. Oh yeah, yeah. Since going back to, I I was gone about a year, and there are lots okay. of people that come in with babies who you know then ask me if I'm new. <laughs> like, nope, I've oh. been here 15 years, but I just haven't been yeah. here since your child was alive. Yeah. But I, you know, you don't want to bring it up to them because again you don't want to talk about your dead child to them but I do bring up that I've had three kids and you know the I'll even say things like oh when my middle one did this or something yeah I've gotten away with it for the most part um, without having to admit to that because you just don't want to in that circumstance yeah it's really really tough yeah I don't know if there's any really right answer, and I think it will also just change as, as you know, time, time goes on. I think, but yeah, I don't have a good answer for that. How was getting through pregnancy when you were newly grieving? Because you told me you found out that you yeah. were pregnant 
right after Maxwell died. Yeah. So I think, you know, there was a picture of me and Max the weekend before. He he also died on a Wednesday, just like Andy. And that weekend before we went to like a park and there was me and and that was the only picture I think that, you know, I was pregnant. It was like the only picture of the three of us. And I found out, so he died on a Wednesday and we had a celebration of life for him on a, the next week, Saturday, about a week and a half later. The day before that, on a Friday, I took a pregnancy test and found out that I was pregnant. We had been trying, so it was not a surprise, but that was, you know, it just kind of adds another layer to already something that's extremely complicated with no roadmap and it just added another layer to it. I think that also came into part of the factor then when I went back to work. It also kept me going. Like, you know, I had to eat. I had to get up. I had to go to the doctor. Yeah, you had to take care of yourself. Right. But I definitely wasn't lost on me that I was writing like a very um, strange line of grieving for a child and bringing another child into this world. But at this point, my mind is still trying to wrap its head around. But, you know, for the most part, all of my time, other than going to work, I had to grieve for Max. I guess some of that energy was also making a child. But I think mentally, most of that energy was really there to grieve for Max because I couldn't really wrap my mind around a new being at that point. Yeah. yeah. It was really hard. I mean, really, really hard. Um, going to the OBGYN was really difficult for me. You know, at, at that early time, I don't know if it was like that for you. A lot of what people said was felt really triggering for me. Like it was a personal insult. Um, I think my OBGYN, um, you know, they were kind of, they're trying to be gentle with you. And, you know, also, you know, to, the caveat is, I don't make a good patient just being a physician already, but she, just in general, I don't think we make good patients. No, um, but no, she, we absolutely yeah, like, do not. We yeah. don't. So she, she said, you know, how, how old are you? Obviously she knows how old I'm, and she's like, oh, don't worry. Like I, I didn't even have my two kids until I was 38 or 39. You're so young. Um, you have plenty of time to complete your family. And I was just uh... like, Hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, went into my car and then just cried the whole way home. And, you know, just things like that that people say that they don't, they're not meaning to be rude. No, um, but the significance that is of really that like, is, yeah. you can have another one to substitute. There's no substitute. <laughs> right. No, nope. and it's like, you know, I will, my family will never be complete. What are no. you even talking about? But they did want you say, to Did you say like, anything or did you not say anything? I didn't say anything. No. Yeah. Sometimes, You're right, though. You I mean, I don't think I would have said anything anyway, either. But the, yeah. that would have been the perfect thing to say. The perfect thing to say would my my family will never be complete. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, of course, but, you know, in the moment, you just know that, like, you just know that something happened that was bad. It's like, I'm like, something you said, I can't, this is bad. But you don't you really can't even register what they said you, to even come up with like, oh, this is oh, what right. you said. And this is what my response to it. But yeah, it, I mean, so it was just, you know, that's just one instance of like, 
tons of instances, not just with my OBGYN, just in general, feeling like um, basically you just, I just felt like a burn victim. Like everything hurt, everything hurt. Like everything I, everything anyone said, I was like gonna cry in my room or in my office. And every little corner had a landmine. Just that's just how it felt. And that's the cute grief. And then also, you know, people not really know how to respond to it. You just don't know when it's coming either. You right? don't it's, know. It's you a don't lot know. of times the littlest things are the ones that put you over the edge. The big ones are yeah. sometimes not as bad as you think. But the little yeah. ones. Yeah. That's hard. It's a, yeah. And I mean, of course, even today, right? It's still, it's still hard. You don't know when that next you know, like landmine is going to really be. It could be at the grocery store when someone asks how many kids you have or whatever it is, but it's kind of like you always are kind of going through life not like how you had, and not just because you lost um, your son, but because of all these other secondary things that are coming up. Yeah, but I mean, I think it was really soon to be pregnant, but I'm glad that I didn't have kind of a choice in that matter of like, when will we try again? You know, yeah, I was thinking that hard. too. And yeah. in that way, it is a little bit of a blessing for you. I think yeah. that that was already done. Because I know for a lot of parents who lose their first and only, it is a struggle to know, are we really going to try again and have another one? And it's, yeah. it's a tough decision to make and yeah. to not have to make that decision is nice. It, it is nice. It is nice. It was nice. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, for the, so for the most part, it was really, a, a, I mean, obviously she's such a blessing, but just having had that was a blessing. And, you know, I definitely have known a few moms that were, that were pregnant as, as they lost either their first or second child. And, you know, it did help with the grieving process. I think one mom said to me, I think she was six, we lost our child around the same time, um, but she was six months pregnant. And I, we checked in with each other every now and then. She said, every time I feel sad, I just hold, I'm just holding this other baby as I cry. And I was like, oh, I wish I had a baby to hold and cry. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't replace, but it, it is nice to have some joy in addition to all the sadness. So mm-hmm. it, it was definitely a, a blessing. But again, a lot of the things that I went through with felt very raw at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you find yourself really worried about during the pregnancy and afterwards if something were to happen? Um. I know some people have, they get, they get very anxious and nervous. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of things. They did do, so going back to Max, they did do a genetic testing on him. They threw some blood in the ICU. And they actually found there was a point mutation on one of the genes, affect the calcium channels in your brain and heart that has been seen in people with SUDEP. And we actually tested it in Luna. I think the timing just worked out. I was able to do an pieces, and she didn't have that gene. So that was oh. really helpful. Yeah. That would be super reassuring. Yes. That was re- really reassuring. So after those results, we, I, I really didn't have any fears after oh. that. That's good. Yeah, I think the timing just worked out just kind of 
really incredibly like well in terms of all of that that was done because it takes some time you know for the testing to come back but yeah it was a real scare and it was um, reassuring to know that she doesn't have it yeah it was a lot <laughs> well well and it's so nice we, though that they did find something specific with max yeah uh, we're really, that you could rule out with luna because a lot of times they don't and if they hadn't then you know i'm certain that your anxiety would have been a little bit uh, more just yeah. because you would be thinking, is it going to start? Is it going yeah. to start? Is it going to start? Right. But since you had a true reason that you could rule out yeah. with her, right. that would yeah. be so helpful. Yeah. And obviously, like as parents with, who have had a death of a child, you know, it's hard to say that we're lucky, but in this respect, we were extraordinarily lucky to have found um, like the exact cause and was able to be reassured that Luna doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were extremely lucky in that. So yeah, I mean, going forward since she's been born, I really haven't had that many fears. We did buy one of those outlet things that goes on her foot to check her pulse ox for a little bit. And then it, the, the, the thing broke and then we were like, yeah, I don't know. So we, we did replace it and so far so good. We haven't really had too many fears for her it hasn't like clouded my parenting or yeah being a parent to her so that's that's also really has been really nice yeah that's Um, yeah yeah I will say that I think initially you know I think it's pretty common that the mom has maybe a stronger bond with the baby just starting out in the first especially the first month first couple months um compared to the dad I think, but I think my husband had a little bit more difficulty um, this time, just I think because of, you know, the traumatic loss and maybe some PTSD symptoms, like he thought maybe she would die. And then, you know, if you're thinking that it's hard to attach, but mm-hmm. now that she's kind of much more engaged and basically a toddler, I, I think that has really passed and not really an issue now. Yeah. But that's no, I'm definitely sure she's a daddy's girl, but yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> It would make sense, though, that you want to try to protect yourself, right? When you've gone through such pain. I know of a mom in my practice who had several miscarriages before having um, her first child. And then she's since had two. But she had a very hard time. Like throughout pregnancy, she felt like she did not want to bond with those kids because she had such experiences of losing them that she thought if I just kind of act like I don't love them right now, then it will not hurt as bad if and when the miscarriage comes. But, you know, that's not the way you want to live either. And then I think she ends up having feeling a ton of guilt then because those kids actually yeah. were born and yeah. are alive and well still today. But she feels yeah. like, oh, I should have loved them from the second I knew I was pregnant. You just can't, yeah. as as Gwen yeah. says, you can't should yourself, you know. Right. <laughs> I should, that's I should, a, I should. You can't do that. Right. Yeah. You can't do that. And, you know, I think, you know, with Luna, it's, I mean, it's obviously will always continue to be different. But, you know, in the beginning, I did have a difficult time in terms of, well, how much of a time should I dedicate to the newborn? How much time should I dedicate to grieving Max? Mm-hmm. I know, you know, it, it was a very confusing time uh, in terms of that. 
Yeah. Am I betraying Max by spending all of my time with right. energy on Luna? Yeah. 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 It's just a hard thing to kind of go through. And it still, you know, it still continues to be not, not always an overt struggle, but I think something that you're always, how do I mother a child who's died? That's always a big question of like, well, how do you? And yeah, it's, it's But you still do, which is so important. Yes, yes. I mean, obviously, you're doing this. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And, you know, we all kind of find our little ways of how to be their mother and how to try our best to honor them in some way. But it's always, you know, changing and you just can't have too much pressure on yourself. Um, Yeah. But but I think even with you, when you said you did that, you recently did that grand rounds on grieving, it's because you wanted to help teach people about how to navigate this and how to help people, right? So that was Max really being able to try to help others. Because as you said, we do a very bad job at this in the medical community. We're awful. So we, we, <laughs> we can do. try to get we people do. to be a little better. Yeah, I'll have to send you the link once I get that up and you can take a look at it. But yeah, it, you know, a lot of people came up to me afterwards and really appreciated how, I guess, you know, there's this big chunk of self-disclosure, but also just, you right. know, really allowing them to be part of this experience meant a lot to them because sometimes people want to help and they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I have no idea where to begin. And, you know, as a griever, sometimes we don't know either. So opening up a space or creating a space where you kind of allow them in a little bit to what it's like, is helpful for you and for them. So I really found the grand rounds, you know, the whole process of making it, doing it, I guess as a way to honor Max and also a way to help me process some of my grief. It was overall a very, like, like a very great experience and at the end I was actually kind of a little bit sad because it was like okay well now how do I you know how do I dedicate time to think about my grief and honor Max so yeah it is nice when you can just set a certain amount of time aside for that isn't it yeah yeah it is it really is how have you been able to find do you feel like the podcast is your way of finding oh, yeah. a way time to think about mm-hmm. Andy mm-hmm. it's amazing that you're you've been doing this it's just it's so amazing to see honestly well thank you but it has been so helpful to me Uh, I I really wonder if I would even be back working as I am you know back to three days a week if not for the podcast because it just gives me such a purpose for where to put my grief that it just doesn't isn't as overwhelming anymore Um, and I just know that I have times I have set aside times that I just can work on my grief and then I can have other days when I can focus on other people's kids, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and I imagine that the, that the podcast for you is as helpful as it is for other people who are able to kind of listen in either if those are bereaved parents or, you know, friends and family of bereaved parents or just anybody really to, kind of learn more about what it feels like and looks like. Thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. 
please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.